welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast, and thank you guys so much for tuning in. In the month here of May 2020, we've been doing some extra episodes on Fridays related to firearms topics. So in the past few weeks, we've talked about ballistics and bullets and related topics, and today we're talking about a brand new rifle that's being released to the hunting market that's much different than what you might think of when you think of hunting rifle. And it's also from a different company that you might think of. So we're talking about the Sig Sauer Cross Rifle. And the guest today is Patrick Hanley, who's the product manager there at Sig, who we have gotten to know over the past year or so, gotten to see some of the development of the Cross Rifle behind the scenes, shoot it at SHOT Show, and then shot some prototypes since as well. So it's an interesting concept. It's a completely different change of idea from what, again, you might think of as a hunting rifle. And we dive into today, not just features, not just like marketing points, but really the story behind the development of the rifle that I was really curious to hear about. So how did Sig Sauer get into the hunting market? Why did they get into the hunting market? And why did they do it with such a radical new design? We talk about all that today with the Sig Sauer Cross Rifle. If you guys haven't seen the rifle yet, you might want to go take a quick peek at it just so you can kind of see some of the things that we are discussing in the show. You can just go to sigsour.com forward slash cross, or there will also be a link in this show description. Guys, as always, we thank you so much for tuning in. You can contact us directly via email to podcast at exomountgear.com. And if you're enjoying the show, we'd appreciate your review in iTunes or wherever else you might be listening to this. All right. Here's our conversation with Patrick Hanley from Sig Sauer. Well, Patrick, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Thanks for joining us, man. Hey, nice to see you again. Nice uh, to hear you again, Mark, and uh, yeah. <laughs> you too. <Steve. laughs> yeah. A weird time for all of us. Few things have happened since Shot Show last time right. we saw each other. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it almost feels like a different world than when we were hanging out last. Um, but yeah, we're getting on today, excited to talk about uh, you know Sigs, kind of really launch into the hunting world in a lot of ways, and what's coming along with that from a product perspective. And you know, Steve and I did get to meet you, Patrick, and see a lot of these new products back at Shot Show, and you know, some of those are coming to market just now. So it's cool timing to. To kind of touch base and follow up on that, um, just go ahead and introduce yourself, Patrick. Any personal introduction, background you want to share, kind of your role with SIG, that type of thing? Yeah, so uh, my name is Patrick Hanley. I actually, uh, I've been in this industry now for uh, 10 years. Uh, my first uh, way of getting into the industry was with, uh, I worked for Thompson Center for quite a bit. And then uh, same place here in, in New Hampshire, where Thompson Center used to be located. I ended up migrating myself down to SIG about four years ago. Um, and throughout this whole time, I've been uh, a product manager. Um, that kind of stemmed from my interest as a kid. I've always been kind of a product guy. Um, I've always spent a lot of time researching products, and I've always been known by all my friends that hunt with me as the uh, the guy who has all the best of the best stuff because I do a lot of research that doesn't pertain to my entire life just my hunting life so I uh, I'm, I'm cheap in every other aspect but when it comes to hunting <laughs> it, 
it's, it's always the, the I'm always researching and finding the top end stuff. So it, it kind of turned me into uh, what I've been doing today, which is I'm now the um, I'm a senior product uh, manager for uh, ammo, accessory, uh, firearms, uh, specifically rifles. And uh, I also do our uh, air gun stuff. So I have a, a, a wider spanning job than when I actually first started working with you guys. I was just in the rifle world, but now I've expanded into all elements, which is significantly helped because obviously they're kind of tied together as a system. So being a part of each individual part helps out a lot. Yeah, touch on that because SIG, you know, some listeners are maybe remotely familiar with the brand. Some might not be super familiar. It's not a name that uh, you traditionally see necessarily pop up pop up specifically in the hunting market, but obviously you go outside of that and get into the tactical space and the handgun um, world. It's SIG's been making great stuff. But one thing that I was surprised about getting to know you, Patrick, and understanding SIG a little bit better is like how all-encompassing SIG is in terms of kind of like a, a full system. Everything you said from firearms to ammo to optics to accessories, um, it's pretty impressive. So yeah, maybe just like a little background on SIG and, you know, what you guys do and have to offer. Yeah, SIG, SIG is an interesting company. So um, for anybody who's familiar with uh, Sauer and Blazer, um, they are very big brands overseas. They're, they're not as uh, big over here, but they certainly, uh, anybody who knows who they are knows how high end of a brand they are. Um, they, for years, were actually, uh, they've been our sister company for a long time. And obviously, they're very highly tied to the hunting market. Um, but they, we, we as Sig Sauer years ago were just a small little handgun company uh, making 226s and 229s in New Hampshire. And we were purchasing those, uh, most of the parts from overseas. And uh, something basically came up that uh, changed all that one day about, I want to say it was about 10 years ago now, where the company was no longer allowed to buy parts from Germany to make our own handguns. So, uh, overnight, that basically created a situation for the company that we had to figure out how to make our own uh, pistols and hoops. And it was from there forward, the company's growth was just amazing. We opened our facility in Exeter, New Hampshire, started making handguns uh, on our own, basically taking a lot of the stuff from Germany and making it over here. Then we moved into uh, making rifles, which are our first crack at rifles with the 5.56. And they, we had a couple of different styles of AR rifles that we made for a while. And then uh, come a few years back, the growth really began when we moved into our big location now that we have at PEs where we manufacture uh, all of our firearms now, rifles, pistols, everything are made in this one facility. Um, and then we have our engineering still in Exeter. And then add on top of that, uh, the uh, owners had a very different uh, way of looking at becoming a systems provider. So from the, the military side of things, um, when you have to go and apply for a contract, they don't want to buy a pistol or a rifle from you. They want to buy everything from you. So essentially, if you're going to go and you say, hey, I want to, uh, they, they say they want a rifle from you, they're telling you to source the ammo, source the optic. And that can become very difficult because now you have to figure out how to make sure that whoever you're buying this stuff from, that they're going to work together in the harmony that this uh, end user wants. 
So our theory became uh, very different than what most companies were doing, which was partnering with another company. We created our own company and the CEO at the time went out and he grabbed some of the talented minds from some of the bigger companies to do that. Yeah. So our optics crew in Oregon, um, you could probably imagine where those guys stem from. These guys uh, are very uh, well versed in the optics world. Um, we have several people out there. We have our own facility out there. Um, we just launched a new handgun optic that we're actually making uh, completely out there. And then down in Arkansas, we have our ammo plant, and also they do our tritium sites down there. And our ammo plant, uh, we make our, we do our own brass, we do our own uh, bullets, we do pretty much everything. And that was kind of the the mo of the company was to get to the point where everything that we make and everything that we design we can manufacture in-house and then we have less chance uh, both in the professional world and the commercial world of being stuck. And obviously with like what's going on right now, uh, you see the benefits of that stuff because you're at your own uh, ability to make things. You're not relying on somebody else to send you as much. So we've become very self-reliant as a company. So SIG as a overall company has grown significant uh, from one of the like small little niche companies 10 years ago to one of the biggest players in the industry and in in the world for for handguns and for rifles now so it's it's been a very big uh very big evolution in a short period of time i'm curious you know we're going to talk about the cross rifle today which is a a new product for you guys that's releasing now and it's kind of that first foray into a, a hunting specific rifle um i'm curious where did the idea for that come from so was there like did it start with Okay, we here at SIG, we want to get into the hunting market and create a hunting rifle. Um, therefore, we go to the drawing board. Or was it some other like, hey, we have this idea for a rifle and it would fit a hunting platform. And it, it kind of came about that way. I guess I'd just love to hear, you know, before we even get to talking about developing the rifle, like what is what is the origin of the idea for the cross rifle? It, it really is probably one of the it's one of the coolest experiences i've had as a product manager typically a lot of these things they happen in isolation where you're trying to come up with a new product and you're working on stuff and you do go out and you reach out to people that have experience and say like hey what do you guys think about this and you know we always try to have user feedback in the instance of this though we were getting into a world that sig was not in Um, i was always entrenched in bolt actions in my last job but we had more experience in this building from a wide variety of different backgrounds that allowed me to basically start almost like a, we had like a small uh, group that we would basically get together on a weekly basis and discuss what a bull gun should be. And we did this kind of in isolation. We weren't talking to management yet. We weren't doing anything. This was like, hey, guys, if we were going to do this and we we're going to approach it right, what would it be? And all our guys in Oregon from the optics team, they're all long range PRS guys. They live in that world. That's all they do. And then internally, I have guys that are former uh, special forces guys that are some of the best shooters, best snipers in the world. Uh, We have on our SIG shooting team, Daniel Horner, who is without a doubt, one of the best shooters in the world, um, both long range and AR pistol. So we had this like wide array and then we had a mix of about five of us that are avid hunters and bolt gun guys. And we basically sat in and it was like a hash it out. Like if we were going to make the perfect rifle and we wanted to do something different than what was in the market already, what are we going to do? And we went down literally part for part through this gun and developed it before we ever made 
any anything on paper to what should this be, what should that be? And like I said, it was a mix of, you know, some of that PRS feedback, some of that hunting feedback, and some of those guys that are like, hey, I've walked with a rifle over my shoulder for 20 years. This is a bad idea. Do it this way. So we we had like a, a very wide array of feedback. But when you look at it, it all pertains back down to a rifle that is designed for the backcountry. And everybody knew that. And we wanted to make something that fit that bill, but utilize some of the other technologies out there that we didn't think were being used. So it's literally just a lot of brainstorming, putting ideas on paper, all that well before you're dealing with any sort of product, like actual product to test and hold and feel. Yeah, you're you're really it's it's a very strange thing to do when you're when you're developing a product, you're literally like white paper and you're sitting down in a room with people. And it's it's literally like for a really bad analogy, it's like being at the Thanksgiving table talking about politics, like (laughs) everybody's agreeing. (laughs) <laughs> it, it's like it, it ends up being like that no you don't know what you're talking about it should be but it, it results in at the end of the day like everybody's got to give a little and they got to bend a little but by the time you start going to paper and making that gun you have a clear path and you're not taking an engineering team down a road that they're going to have to change 20 times when we were all set and decided what this gun should be there was nobody who turned around and said we should make you know, we should we should do this differently. This was a bad idea. Everybody was on the same page and we were all working together to kind of help that engineering team along to make sure that that vision was saw through. Yeah, you and I first talked at the in the last summer. It's, you know, coming up on a year and you kind of just told me about the high level and you guys coming out with this rifle. And I know you guys spent the fall, um, you know, once you had functional rifles and had a product you guys spent the fall in the backcountry hunting uh both for yourselves with guys like ryan kleckner who we've had on the podcast with the born and raised crew um you know got in the field with them with the rifles i'm just curious like from you spend so much time as you said on white paper and going over ideas then you're building obviously prototypes and actual product you can hold obviously there's a lot that goes into that in terms of test firing within factories and whatnot but then that transition of going into the field, like what is some of the, what's some of the value of that, both in terms of just feedback as well as the product, I guess that whole, that whole phase from last fall of actually getting it out there, filling tags, getting it to hand, getting it in the hands of guys who weren't part of those initial conversations. Like what really came of that? Yeah, it, it actually was incredibly helpful. We did this in a very different manner where um, in my past, when I worked at my last job, I was at a, a lower level of product management. And I'd always see like we'd, we'd derive a new bolt gun, we'd have it made in an engineering center. Uh, we would send it out into the field. And when, when it would go out in the field, it would be like, hey, send it to this guy so he can go sit in a tree stand at a really nice place and shoot an animal. And we all know that rifles, they work well to shoot animals and kill animals. You don't need to be, you know, basically at the end of the day, when you sell it, it's very similar to what you guys have in your pack. The features are what make people look and say, oh, that's, that's what I've been looking for. So that's only derived through experience and going out and using product. We, we wanted to approach this in a very different fashion. We wanted this to become uh, the ability to have end user feedback before we went into what we would call an iteration two phase. So picture you decide that you want to, you make this idea of what a firearm should be. You bring it in, 
we start making parts. We have a full prototype department. So my engineers can be like, okay, here's the design of the gun. Here's the layout of the gun. Here's all the pieces and parts that I need. Prototype will start manufacturing those parts. And then they're able to assemble guns on a, a low volume uh, level. So basically, we were able to make about 10 guns that we were able to use some for testing and some for this hunt. Um, the goal of that was to take it out and to use it in an environment in which we were telling people it was going to be used for to find out any flaws, any things we didn't like, and make any changes before iteration two. Because your iteration two is really your final design. Once you start calling up forging houses and you start calling up molders and you start buying all those parts, you've now moved into a level where turning around and going back the other way becomes a lot more difficult. So we we wanted this thing to be taken out into the field. We wanted people to fold it and put it in a backpack and shoot it and beat it up and find out the things that they didn't like. And it was one of the cooler experiences I think that I've ever had because of the fact that we we did this on a, a piece of public land in southern Colorado. Um, there was no guides, no outfitters. Essentially, what we did was we had uh, a SIG personnel with each person that was out there. So like you mentioned, the bro guys came. They were uh, along with uh, Peter Howell, who works on our optics team. I was out there with Daniel Horner. Um, we had Ryan Kleckner with my boss, John Brasser. So we basically teamed everybody up. And the goal behind that was to not only go out there and use the firearms and have other people use them, but it was to get that user level feedback to people who were going to be able to go back afterwards and explain that to the engineers of like, hey, we found that this is a problem. Like one thing we found uh, out there in the testing is the way that the stock locked. We weren't happy with how it was locking and that it wasn't holding tight enough in position. Um, we found probably a, a list of about 10 or 12 different things that we were able to change as a result of 10 days in the backcountry and doing basically a round table when we were done and having people be like, here's all the things that were great. Here's all the things that we would change. And then we went back to that drawing board and we came up with the second iteration product, which is now what we'll be releasing in June. You know, I've had a chance to play with one of those earlier prototypes. And every time I like made a mental note to myself and like made this little checklist and then asked you those questions, you were like, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> like something that's already been changed or, you know, something that we've looked at or that somebody else has brought to attention. And none of that was like major issues um it was just like little minor like hey is this normal or is this intentional and every single time you were uh it was something that our had come out through testing basically that you were addressing which i thought was really good yeah i think like i said this was very it was it was very different i i always was bothered as a, a hunter by the way that we would try to like i've seen other products in the in my past that were brought to market the way they were brought to market is like you're going out and you're saying like, hey, in theory, this is cool and this feature is cool. Uh, for me, it was like when me and, and my boss, John Brasser, started laying this out and we started talking about it, we were like, hey, we got to dive in and make sure that all of these claims that we're making are going to work. And then on top of that, we want to find out what else we're missing by taking it out there and experiencing it. And I think there's there's no better way of doing it than what we did. I think you could, like I said, you can take any rifle on a hunt and go sit in a tree stand or sit in a ground line, and it's probably going to function fine. But 10 days of, you know, sticking it in and out of a pack and shooting it repetitively to at, at the range to get people to try it out and then going back out and beating it up some more and trying some more and 
playing with the stock locking hinge to make sure it's folding properly. All those things are stuff that you're not going to get by just bringing it to a test range or doing a low level hunt. I think what we did was very, very good in the sense that it allowed us to have that, that high level feedback of what we were, what we're claiming this rifle is going to be perfect for. Yeah. So if guys haven't seen it, I would say, I mean, maybe even hit pause on this and like go look up a video or some photos of the cross rifle because it's, it's very different than, um, what you picture when you think hunting rifle. And we're, we're going to dive into that, but maybe if guys have never seen it, it would be helpful to have some context on what it looks like. Um, you know, I was surprised when I saw the first renderings, first prototypes, that type of thing. And honestly, since that time, um, both from hunting experiences, like our experience in Kodiak and how thick that was and how much of a pain a long rifle was there. Like I see appeal to that. Um, I see appeal, you know, in all kinds of ways as I'm looking to shoot more with a suppressor, like a shorter barrel has appeal there. Cause now you're putting a suppressor length on the end of that. So there's a lot of things to me that this rifle has more and more appeal just based off of experience that I've I've had. Um, so, but let's, let's like break down the design and features and, you know, it's one thing to like hop online and just look at specs and look at, you know, marketing materials. But I think it's really cool to work with you, Patrick, and have this conversation because we can really talk about the design and why things were done and how they were done, um, and really get insight to it, which I'm excited about starting with like, the core of the rifle, you know, a lot of guys would probably look at the stock because it's unique or the shorter barrels, but I want to start on the receiver. You know, it's, it's much different than a, a traditional bolt action rifle setup. Um, it has this AR style receiver, but is a bolt action. Um, but just hit like the purpose and the benefits and why you guys went with this type of receiver design and what that does for you. I think that was like the only thing that everybody in that meeting room I was talking about was 100% passionate about was a lot of people when we came out with this were like, oh, that's a really nice chassis gun. And I've like tried so hard to escape that word because uh, the thing that we were so passionate about in this gun to have it be different was to go with that one piece receiver, which is incredibly difficult to do. As you can probably tell, looking at that thing, it is a beast of machining to go in and be able to make a one-piece receiver like that. But the idea behind it being is a one-piece receiver with a barrel extension, basically that receiver is now working as a place for your bolt to ride. You're removing any sort of ability for a chassis-style gun where your action screws can loosen, which does happen quite a bit on almost on a lot of bolt guns, and other situations between bedding interaction that can affect accuracy. We essentially wanted to make this so that the extension of the barrel was where all of your accuracy was held. So your your receiver is basically one big bedding block. Your barrel is where your accuracy is held. So what that does for a shooter is if you have an accurate barrel, you have an accurate gun. You're removing variables out of the platform. And the guys that we uh, that helped me work on this to design it are the type of guys that want to shoot one hole. And they know from experience that the more of these variables you remove from a from a rifle like this, the the better chance you have at making a super, super accurate rifle. Because, like I said, then it goes back to the barrel. You're not chasing things back through the gun, trying to find what else could be affecting your accuracy. So it's it's a very difficult task to manufacture a, a one piece receiver like that. But we were 
absolutely 100% sold that had to happen. And it actually made the trigger more difficult because as you can imagine, if you think about a, a chassis rifle or any of the bolt guns you guys have, um, you put a hanger trigger in there, your trigger's interaction is very close to the bolt. When you look at the cross and the way that it's laid out, you have quite a bit of space between the bolt and the uh, trigger. So we actually had to create our own 100% design of a trigger with a linkage system to be able to go from that further down uh, area of the receiver all the way up to the bolt. So it was everything on this gun is 100% new design. We did not buy or take apart from anybody. It doesn't have its own, it doesn't use a Remington trigger or anything. I mean, we literally went through and made every single part because we knew in order to make it to the specifications that we wanted, that was a big part of it. And that's where that that one piece receiver really drove a lot of that because without that, you could go out and use a lot of other parts that exist in the marketplace, but that wasn't our goal. Our goal was 100% to make the gun right the first time in the way that we wanted it. You mentioned the accuracy being all in the barrel. And one of the things that's unique on this rifle is you can actually change barrels and change uh, calibers cartridges at the same time with that. So um, we'll hit on the offerings in terms of what it comes in at 6.5 Creedmoor, 308, and then a new uh, cartridge we'll spend a lot of time talking about is 277 Fury. But talk a little bit about that barrel swap and how that works, um, you know, integrates with the receiver in terms of head spacing and being able to kind of use or swap that at home. Yeah, so what we did was we kept this to the point where it could be as easy as anybody changing an AR barrel. So as we know, there's a lot of people right now uh, that are, it's become more popular to build an AR than to buy an AR in the last 10 years. People have had a lot of interaction with assembling ARs, and this thing works identical to that, essentially. Um, the way that we do that in order to make it user level uh, changeable like that is, we set the headspace in house with uh, a jam nut. So when you remove that, the handguard, you take the barrel off, you'll actually see that there's a jam nut in front of the, uh, the, the extension. And that jam nut is actually used for us in house to set the headspace. And then the bolts are held to uh, the same headspace and have to go through the factory that way to make sure that we're holding tolerances. So every bolt, every barrel holds the same tolerances. So you're able to take that, barrel, put on a new barrel, put an AR style nut that goes over the top of that extension and that jam nut. And that's going to, once you torque that down, you're, you're basically right back to the pro appropriate headspace. You don't have to do any further adjustments. So it's, it's allowing it to be user level adjustable. We're not making people dive in too deep to learn how to do it. It's something that you can do very easily. And as of right now, we basically have one bolt face. So you're, you're going to have uh, your bolt's going to remain the same for each one. So it's literally a simple barrel swap. Crazy. Um, other things on the receiver, I know there's an integrated rail set, uh, zero MOA, 20 MOA. Are there options there? What's that look like? We are going to ship that just based on, on feedback. Once again, doing stuff, it's going to ship with a 20 MOA, but we are going to have a zero MOA that's available. We're also going to have a full length zero and 20. So when I say full length, you'll have a handguard that has a built-in top rail that will go all the way back to the receiver. Um, that's for anybody that wants to be able to use any type of laser or any type of other accessories on the rail and have it be monolithic. It basically will give you a one-piece offering. And then the other thing that we are doing um, that you'll see uh, by the fall is we're doing uh, those same rails with uh, integrated ARCA rail too that will be underneath the handguard that's machined into the handguard. So it'll give basically 
we're trying to basically look at any ways that we can remove any variables for accuracy so that the ARCA rail, and the the top rail will all be integrated as one part machined out of a handguard. So you're, it's just one less thing that uh, has a chance to move. Huh. You know, it's one of those things I've heard guys talking about, you know, ARs, for example, being adult Legos, because there's all this plug and play and different options and pieces. And it sounds like that, you know, part of that's going to be on this cross, cross platform of you can change your rail, you can change your handguard, you can kind of customize it. I know that the even like the... Um, the hand grip, that's a standard AR hand grip, correct? Like you can change your preference there. Yeah, it, 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 that's exactly what we we're thinking. So the problem when we did this was like, we looked at it from the perspective of as if you can, it, when you see the gun, you know, the first thing that people would think is that it's probably a heavier style PRS gun. The gun's obviously, it, it, you guys have felt that it's very light. And, and what our, our way of thinking there was if we can make a sub seven pound uh, rifle, we could make a million accessories to make it heavier, to make it do all kinds of other things. What you can't do is it's much more difficult to make it lighter. So the accessories that'll be coming out for this thing, there's going to be some really cool stuff that we're doing that will help people create more uh, weight in areas where they would want it. So rather than just making the gun heavier, we've come up with accessories that'll allow you to balance both the, you know, a heavier barrel that's longer with a, the back end to have a, a better balance. It, it allowed us to basically create a entire bandwidth of accessories that allow people to customize it to what they want to do with it. But if the gun was heavy out of the gate, that's a much more difficult task. By having the super light gun, now we can create this world of accessories that let people do what their intent with it is. It's funny how there's that whole other the whole other world of guys purposely making guns heavy, you know, like you said on the PRS side and adding weight kits and they're shooting these, you know, twenty-four pound low recoil and rifles, which is totally different than, you know, what guys are going for in terms of backcountry hunting. But being able to customize it is the best of both worlds there. Yeah, and I think, you know, that was part of the evolution of this gun was we were thinking in the sense of like those guys that are PRS guys, a lot of them work with us and a lot of them are hunters. And what we were trying to do is kinda merge those two worlds together so hunters want lighter weight precision guys want a gun that is very adjustable typically they want it heavier too in most cases but what we kind of felt like what what is missing in this platform this style of platform gives you is when when you go out and you shoot at a, a shoot long range you dial your your cheek piece you dial everything that you have in so that you feel comfortable shooting that gun and a lot of times I found myself like I had my my guns that I'd go and shoot long range with and I had them like perfectly set where my head was at the right height. Everything was good and I'd be able to shoot it. And then I'd grab a, a hunting rifle out of my safe to go hunting. And it was like trying to adjust your head and move around on it. And there's not any adjustment points. So the goal was to kind of merge those two worlds. And that's that's kind of what the you know, the, having that stock and having this design does do for you, too, is. Those PRS guys are good at shooting long range for a reason. And when you're out west, you have a lot of opportunities like that, and you want a gun that's going to fit you properly. Yeah, so on the stock, there's adjustable length of pull, adjustable um, cheek height You know, for your cheek weld. You got adjustable butt pad in terms of height and cant. Like, there's all kinds of ways to dial this in. At the same time, it, you know, it's all pretty simple. Um, you know, I, and I was... <laughs> Like when I first started playing with this rifle, you know, take that uh, that cheek height, for example, the way that you adjust that is actually spring loaded. So if you if you loosen the lever to take off the tension that's holding the, the cheek weld in place, 
it's spring loaded, so it shoots up. And I thought, well, that's really goofy. Like, why? Because now you lose position. Why would you do that? Um, and it wasn't until talking with you at Shot Show and you kind of showing me. It's like, oh, it's actually perfect because it's it's spring loaded. It's sitting in the highest position. You literally shoulder the rifle, get in position, drop your cheek, get it to where you want to be. And instead of the cheek piece just falling, it has that tension being spring-loaded. So you basically set your position, flip a lever, and you're done. So like little stuff like that that at first I didn't even get and I thought was goofy. It's like, oh, that's actually super smart. Yeah, that's like I said, when you get that many guys in a room, a lot of those guys that we had that are foreign military guys that like a PRS guy is super used to sitting there and dialing a stock for an hour. A lot of the guys that are competition shooters or military guys that are with us are like, I, I don't know why I want to sit there and fumble with that and lift my head up, put my head down, lift my head up, put my head down when I can literally pop this piece up, get my head to where I want it and lock it. And that was, once again, it was feedback of how can this be done differently without having to have it be so tedious. And yeah, that was 100% uh, user level feedback that came up with that design. And at first we weren't sure about it. Then we tried it and we're like, yeah, this is perfect. This is exactly what we wanted. What's a... You know, you mentioned how much of this is unique from the trigger and all that. You talked about the barrel swap and the head spacing, and part of that's the bolt. I'm just, what was uh, unique about the bolt? Because I know that that's another piece you guys kind of had to work with from the ground up. And um, I don't know if this ties into the 277 Fury and talking about those pressures, but uh, maybe just hit on kind of the bolt design. It's a three lug bolt, correct? Yeah, it's a three lug bolt uh, with a 60 degree lift. The, the, the design behind the bolt was to. Uh, give us a we wanted the we wanted the uh, shorter lift uh, strictly for the fact that we wanted to make sure with some of the bigger belt scopes especially some of the ones that we have but everybody has a a, a lot of scopes nowadays that with certain rings and certain uh, bells in the back it's difficult to get a proper bolt lift without interference so we were we were cautious of that but the bolt design itself um, the way that we built the the striker the way that we built the the lugs was all designed by us with some intent of uh, knowing that in the future we're going to have a this hybrid case design mostly on that it's the lugs so we were able to do a lot of uh, we have a lot of really cool technology that allows us to do uh, pressure testing without pressure testing so essentially we're able to to kind of create scenarios with certain pressures on certain surfaces to uh, see what is going to happen over a period of time and one of the things we're going to get asked several times over and over from people when they hear and they see the 277 Sig Furious, like, oh, man, that technology is cool. Can you throw that in my 6.5 Creedmoor? Can you throw that in my 308? And there was an intent behind us making this a proprietary cartridge. It wasn't so that we could you know, corner the market. We've actually opened this up to Sammy. We're trying to get this as like the new technology that we want more people to be loading. We we want people uh, like using this design. We we feel like this is like the going from black powder to smokeless powder. Like we have a revolutionary change that can affect the whole market. But you have to be cautious also about you know what guns are out there. There's guns that are 308s that are 50 years old that we we don't know how they're going to function if we put a high pressure case in there. Uh, like the 277. So we designed this gun to work around that system and have a beefy lug that would allow it over time to be plenty strong. And then what we do is when we start having uh, people manufacture uh, rifles in these cartridges, we're going to be providing that information so that they have that same awareness. So if they want to use uh, our technology in ammunition, they know what that bolt strength has to be when you start going up into these higher pressures. So 
it was designed fully with the intent of knowing what we have coming down the road with the with the hybrid technology. Yeah, I'll start deep into that here in a sec on that hybrid technology, what that case design is and the 277 Fury. Um, you know, the other cartridges that the Crosk is going to come in is 6.5 Creedmoor 308. Um, you know, talking about this platform, and again, if guys have seen it, they've seen the stock. We mentioned all the adjustability. We didn't quite talk about how it locks and folds, but essentially it, the stock itself uh, folds forward from right behind the receiver um, has a locking mechanism. Uh, it also, one thing that, you know, was clever that I saw in the design, uh, after playing with it is how when the stock folds forward, it's skeletonized and basically the, the bolt passes through the stock. So that's, there's no chance of the bolt, um, you know, coming out of breech position when the stock is folded, but between the folding stock and then these shorter barrels, you're dealing with a rifle that has a, a length of what, what is it? 25 26 inches patrick when it's folded 25 inches folded in the shortest configuration the the 6.5 is a couple inches longer just because of the barrel length but yeah it's it's super short when it's folded down it's it's pretty much the length of a pack when inserted in the pack which gives you obviously a much lower profile yeah that's neat man we're going back to like i was saying on freaking kodiak when we were busting through brush on like anything else and barrels were sticking up and getting hung up i was wishing i had a, a folded 25 inch rifle that's for sure for that one um yeah, and you brought up the suppressor side of it too that's very key in that because you guys have shot suppressors i've i was really started using them more when i got to sig and I think a lot of people have that kind of moment when they start hunting with a suppressor of like, why is everybody not doing this? It's the gun's more accurate. You get better velocities. You get uh, the, the, the obviously the the hearing side of it is phenomenal. Uh, the it, it, There's just so many positives to it. But the negative has always been when you have a, a, a 40 inch gun and you want to add another seven inches to it, it becomes this gigantic broomstick that you got to carry through the woods with you. So having that ability, and actually we will this um, fall, we're working on some, we're kind of dubbing a hunting titanium suppressor that will be available. And uh, we're, we're designing it around the cross, but it'll work for any platform. We're doing a, a 30 cal uh, printed can that will be, it will be hearing safe and it will be super short and it will add only about uh, four inches to the barrel length. So wow. there's a lot of stuff happening. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff happening there too with our, some of our new technology to be able to make suppressors shorter and still effective. And that way you're, you're able to have all these benefits, but I mean, I, I know you guys know, but, but the suppressor side of things is uh, we see it as a big change in the future. I, I, the, the more people we brought it out this year, uh, the guys from uh, born and raised had never hunted with a suppressor and Trevor and Cody came with us. And uh, within like the first day, uh, Trevor smiling from ear to ear, asking me how quickly I can get some of these sent to him. Like people <laughs> they have that experience for the first time. And it's like, why haven't I always hunted like this? It's so much more pleasant. And yeah. so that, that, that weight in a big part of this design to do was to make sure that people could effectively hunt with a suppressor without the gun being too big and overall length. Right. So the 277 Fury we'll hit the performance that it gets out of a short barrel, which is a 16 inch barrel. But can we touch on like, so the six, five Creed more, um, in the cross is an 18 inch barrel, which is, you know, short. A lot of guys are having 22s, 24s. There's 26 inch Creed Moors out there. Um, what kind of 
numbers can be expected from that 18 inch barrel i've seen you know rules of thumb out there of guys saying you basically lose 25 feet per inch uh, in terms of speed um, is that accurate or i guess kind of shed some light on uh, what could be expected from this 18 inch six uh, five creed more on the cross platform yeah, we did something very unique in this. Um, what I did was where Daniel Horner has so much experience with shooting, I kind of went to him and said, hey, if we want to actually have short barrels on this, what, what I'd like you to do is I'm going to send you two guns. And he literally very primitively took a 26-inch gun and shot it and cut it two inches at a time with two different guns all the way down on the 308 and a 6.5 and sent us one of the like best data pieces I've ever seen on something like that. He shot it with multiple, multiple ammos. We, we went through the whole side of it because we wanted to make sure that we weren't leaving too much on the table, uh, knowing where people were going to be shooting long range. So on the, the, the reason we landed on the, uh, the, the sweet spot of 18 inch is it, it is rule of thumb that you, the 25 feet per second. But what happens is you get to that, that, area of diminishing returns where you're starting to see a rifle go from really, really quick gains to much slower gains as it hits a certain length. So at that point, you're gaining minimal for every inch of barrel you're carrying. And technically, if you looked at every caliber on the market, everybody has 24s or 22s, and they make 17 guns in the same barrel length. If you really wanted to optimize every barrel on the market, every almost every caliber would have its own length because every one of them has that point of diminishing returns but we set out to try to have uh, a point where it would still be suppressor friendly the gun would still be compact and we would be able to not go too short so uh, basically we kind of went all the way back to uh 14 inches and our basically what we found was you were losing some but that gain was much smaller so at a 65 creedmoor for example uh, varying on ammunition, we were between 2650 and 2700, where you're getting about uh, in the 2900 to 3000 range with a 24 or 26 inch barrel. So you're 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 giving up about 300 feet per second, but you're you're talking six inches of barrel, which is significantly more barrel length for just that small amount of velocity. But if you get below 18 inches, if you start creeping into 16 inches and 14 inches that number drops significantly so it's basically our goal was to find where is that point where we're going to start to see that massive fall off and the gains are much less than the weight and that's where we stopped on both of these and that's also why you know our experience told us we make a lot of guns for uh, military snipers around the world and ar platforms and what a lot of people probably don't know is that most of the DMR style AR rifles that are being used for long range shooting in 308 and 65 Creedmoor are almost all 16 inch and 308 and 18 inch and 65. Uh, it's very, very common. Most of the, the, the military snipers that we've sold guns to, we very, very rarely go longer than that on a barrel length. So part of it was experience, but we did dig in deep to make sure that the claims we were going to make were appropriate and daniel was very helpful in in uh finding that information for us yeah it's not uncommon as you said on the military side to see those shorter barrels for sure which you know some of the guys in the hunting world uh might not be as familiar with the so let's hit that 277 fury talk about the technology it's a 16 inch barrel i would say uh 
these are my numbers. So I was actually able to to test this and pull my speeds. I was getting um, right at 2950 from a 16 inch barrel, which is incredibly smoking when you have this little platform and you're getting right at 2950. You mentioned a hybrid case design earlier. Let's start there. What is what is that case design if guys haven't seen it? Yeah, so this was once again derived from military technology. The the army came to a lot of companies and said, um, for mostly for belt fed purposes, you can imagine guys carrying a heavy belt fed machine gun and a lot of ammunition. The military's concern for the future generation was how do we make the ammunition lighter and still be effective? How do we make the gun lighter? So we were tasked with the the belt fed side, which we've started working on as far as the gun goes, but on the, on the rifle side, on the ammunition side, it became, uh, they wanted basically a short action 308 base cartridge that was going to have an effective range in a 6.8 bullet, which was the first one that we were tasked with that they wanted. And they wanted it to be able to achieve velocities of 3000 feet per second. So we had all these things on the table of like, this is what you need to do and you can't exceed this weight. So by going into uh, the, the technology that we created is we took a stainless steel base. So when you see this cartridge, the, the bottom of it, the bottom third of the cartridge is uh, manufactured out of stainless steel um, that we, we make down in Arkansas. And that stainless steel is where all your pressures are contained. Uh, when you're looking at uh, ammunition, what a lot of people don't realize is that that lower half of that cartridge is where you're going to see all your pressures. So we created a much stronger material in the area where it was needed. Um, the problem in the past, this, this is it's new technology, but similar things have been created like this. The problem has always been, how do you manufacture it? So it's like a lot of things you can make a one off of almost anything, but we had to figure out a way that we could make millions of rounds with this technology. So the real breakthrough was in between the brass and the stainless is a locking washer that uh, we press the two together and that locking washer keeps from case separation because in a manufacturing environment, if you just press fit those together without some kind of mechanism holding them, they're gonna wanna separate at that high of a pressure. So case separation was our biggest challenge that we were able to overcome with the, the locking washer design. And what that allowed us to do is an average case, if you took a, you know, a, an, an average cartridge is year round 50,000 uh, PSI, we're raising these up to as high as 80 to 85,000 PSI. And that's being done through that technology by having that stainless base on there. So a lot of people will look at the cartridge, the 277 Sig Fury, it's at 3,000 feet per second and be like, hey, you know, why is that different than my, my 270 Winchester short mag? And the barrel length is what you brought up, Mark. And that's what's really different is our ability to climb to velocity with those higher pressures is far quicker than what you can get with a bigger cartridge. Um, it allows us to use a much hotter powder that's burning a lot faster, that's creating a, a, a round to come out of a 16-inch barrel at amazing velocities. And this is not limited by any stretch of the imagination to just the 6.8. This is a technology that we're already testing in uh, five or six different cartridges for multiple purposes that will allow us in the future to have this ability to do these short barrel options and not give up ballistics. It's crazy intriguing to me. That's like, just can't wait to see that develop further. Yeah. 
What does that do to barrel life? That's a question I've had and I've seen come up as guys talk about the 277 Fury. That that type of speed coming out of that short barrel, are there certain things that you guys have found, whether it's barrel material, what have that you're trying to, you know, kind of keep that barrel life? Um, because obviously you get into some wild cats and crazy magnums and they're known to be hard on barrels. I would imagine that these pressures and speeds with a 16-inch barrel, um, that could be a concern as well. Yeah, so our initial testing, obviously, mostly everything was chrome-lined uh, because of the the nature of what we were designing the cartridge for. So we weren't sure of that either. But we actually found um, in the level of grade of stainless that we're using in this was developed uh, with that same premise to make sure that, and it's the same material that we use on the 6.5 and the 308, but we we found the material that we were using was giving us a much better barrel life. We're still digging through our DB testing now, which is our design validation to find exactly what that barrel life is before we start making a whole bunch of claims of it. But it will be significantly more than people expect from what I've seen so far. We basically call a barrel dead at, at 10% accuracy loss. So if if your barrel get you have a one inch gun and you get over 1.1 inches, that's a dead barrel to us. So we we go in and we we shoot literally 50 to 100 guns of testing to come up with that kind of median number. And we provide that number out to the open market to say like, Hey, this is what your, your life or your barrel is. And the ones that we've tested so far, like I said, I, I think people with that, uh, with that cartridge are going to be surprised that it does fairly well for given what it is. That's a pretty small tolerance when you put it in that, you know, that 10% then going, Oh, it's just moving from, you know, an inch to 1.1. Um, in my experience with this rifle, it's also shooting less than an inch. The ones that I've shot, um, that's so that's yeah, that's good to know. What's uh, I guess that goes back to just you know to highlight the point we mentioned earlier. Theoretically, a guy gets one of these rifles, sends a ton of rounds on range, exceeds that barrel life, starts to get to get that degradation. That goes back to the ability of him being able to essentially swap on a new barrel at home. I assume that you know that's something you guys would just aftermarket support of you know you can buy just the barrel when you need to yeah and we've already started like we're working with one of the one of the things that we've always been adamant about is is that we know for this gun to be successful we need the the rest of the world to adapt it as far as companies go so we're making barrels and we'll offer barrels but we've already started going to about eight to 10 barrel makers that make aftermarket barrels and giving them all this information so that they have the ability to be manufacturing these too. So not only will there be, you know, carbon fiber barrels and other stuff available in the marketplace when the gun comes out, but there will be other easy options of if you burn that barrel up, you're able to easily replace it. Like you said, it's, it's not creating a, uh, you know, an armorer's level uh, barrel swap. It's a much easier barrel swap to be able to change it out. With the 277 Fury, you know, one, uh, anytime you introduce a new cartridge, uh, you talk about availability and options specifically for hunting, you know, looking at the, the bullet selection, what type of options are there going to be in terms of bullet weights, bullet designs, if guys are looking to hunt with the 277 Fury? So that was one of the reasons we took this cartridge out west for elk specifically too was that they're as everybody knows one of the the tougher animals when it comes to stuff like this and uh we we took our tipped hunting round out there and we had uh, a level of effectiveness that worked but we wanted to go kind of back to the table with some ideas after we did this so 
Uh, one of the things that's great now is this year, just by chance, a lot of people are coming out with multiple options for bullets um, in that cartridge. I think at, you know, we talked to the guys right after SHOT Show from Nosler. They launched their 27 Nosler SHOT Show. Um, and we've been working very closely with them on their 150 and 160 grain Acubons that we're going to be putting into this uh, hybrid cartridge at launch um, to have some heavier weight options. And then the um, the tip hunter that we have will be more of our kind of whitetail round that will be down in the 140 range that will give people a, a lighter weight option for, for that. And then we're also going to have a, a third round, which is a kind of an open tip match, which will be more of a precision guys round. So our goal was to make sure we had a, a big game, a medium game and a precision round. And we'll have all three of those at launch. But that like I said, that Colorado thing was instrumental in that because we, we've all, you know, hunted with different cartridges for elk. I've used several different ones. And obviously that that has always been in the favor of the 30 cal for a lot of people over the years that you have more bang for your buck with the weight you're getting out of a, a 308 or a 300 wind mag or a 30 out six. But uh, with the development in these rounds, the uh, the, the nozzles that we've been shooting out of these, the energy that we'll, we'll report when we bring this out, um, is phenomenal out of that 150 grain and that 160 grain. And obviously you're getting a much heavier projectile for big game like that. So that'll be a, a SIG loaded ammunition offering, but with that Nosler Acubond. Yeah. Right. At, like I said, right after the shot show timeframe, you know, that was on the top of our list was to develop a bullet because of what we had. Uh, we went out there and we used that that tip hunter on some of that bigger game with that smaller bullet and we weren't happy with it. And we're like, yeah, we're going to go back and we're going to develop a heavier bullet. So we started working on how can we do that? And then Nosler came out of shot show and we have a really good relationship with those guys. They're awesome guys over there. And we made a phone call and we're like, Hey, you guys have what we need. <laughs> We'd like to buy it. Yeah. We, uh, we had talking with them and, uh, it, they sent us a bunch of rounds and we sent them down range and it's doing exactly what we want. So they, they very quickly furthered that progression for us to have a big game bullet ready. What type of, um, you know, whether it be soon or just in the future with this hybrid case design, be it 277 Fury or others that may come, what type of reloading potential is there for guys who are hand loading um, and looking at potentially using this hybrid case design for that? Because of the fact that we still have some, uh, we've been so entrenched in making the round, there, there are ways in which we have found that it, it is possible um, where they've been tiptoeing very carefully uh, in Arkansas on, uh, on our answer to that, rightfully so, because we don't, we don't know enough about some of the, the stuff that uh, we need to know before we say it is fully reloadable. However, our goal 100% is to make it eventually reloadable. And our biggest goal is to offer these prime cases, obviously, to the market too, so people can load it. Um, but the, the, there is some intricacy with the, the primer pocket and what forth when you're talking about reloading these that we're still, we're still working through to make it a uh, possibility for people to, to be able to reload that ammunition. Um, and then we also do uh, plan on for some of the people that just want to be able to shoot the cartridge if, if they're, you know, want to be able to reload and shoot just for hobby or sport target shooting we will have a brass variant that we're also working on too that's a solid brass that'll be a cheaper ammunition that people will be able to shoot out of it as well just for kind of uh target shooting or whitetail hunting things like that there'll be that should be available 
uh, coming the beginning of the year too. Okay. So that would be if a guy has a, a cross, a 277 Fury, but he's going to have this all brass option, obviously at lower pressures and all that, as you mentioned, for target or smaller game, but he can essentially um, reload that all brass case and run it through that same rifle. Yes, exactly. It's it'll be a uh, it'll just be an option for people to be able to have. We know that a lot. You know, one of the things is I was around for the uh, the original six five Creedmoor launch, and I remember like I was a huge fan, and I was very surprised by how little acceptance there was in the market when it first came out. And a lot of that just came down to available options. And as that cartridge stuck around, we've all seen what it's become today. So we know we need to, you know, not only make a brass round that people can shoot a lot. We want other companies to make this cartridge. We're already going through Sammy to give that information to everybody. For this to be successful, we want to have as many options out there for people as possible for reloading because those are the guys that really, they really make the market for us. Reloaders are the guys that are going to go out and buy these unique cartridges and and uh, use them and want to be able to reload them. So as we, you know, come out um, with this podcast, we're coming up right on June. I know that was at, at one point a timeline for the Fury, but I guess, you know, or sorry, for the Fury, for the cross I meant, um, I guess along with that, the Fury, but kind of give us an update if guys are interested in checking out the cross, where do they go, where can they find info, and then can they start placing orders if um, it's something that they're interested in? So we started opening up orders to the... Uh all of the dealers nationwide uh, this beginning of this week. Um, so we're starting to take orders now. Um, we wanted to hold till we got till our our uh, final confirmation, especially with everything going on, that we were going to be pretty well confirmed with our dates. And uh, what we're doing right now is we're planning on the second week of June, starting that kind of first buildup of guns to start sending some out to the market. Uh, and then by the first uh, part of July, uh, we'll start ramping up production and we'll be in full production in July. And um, it's it's very interesting because I think a lot of people, you know, they they hear when companies come out with new platforms and stuff like that. I know it gets frustrating because they see them go out in the market and they're like, hey, how come I can't get my hands on one of these? It is a very long, intricate process. And unfortunately for us with with SHOT Show and everything, we wanted to tell everybody about this platform. But we've been very committed to that June timeline. And even with COVID-19 being a factor and a lot of things, um, we're still uh, on track right now, which is just a miracle to me. But our guys have been doing a really and everybody's been passionate about this. It, it's cool because the whole company is really behind this gun because I think we had a, we had a lot more bolt gun people than we realized when we did this. And, yeah. and there's been a lot passionate of it. But I, I, I would say the best place, if you go to our website, we've spent a lot of time digging through and trying to make sure as much information is available as possible. Obviously, we've we've started putting up some YouTube videos, and we'll have a whole bunch more um, that are talking about uh, the product in a, a fashion that explains its its usages and its uniqueness and what forth. But certainly, our our YouTube channel would be one of the better places, and our website sixhour.com is another place where you're gonna uh, find the majority of the information you're gonna want to find out about it. Yeah, cool. So it's uh, the three cartridges you mentioned. It's the 6.5 Creedmoor, 308, and then the 277 Fury, and then the rifle itself. You can also get uh, in a black and then also the fusion camouflage pattern. Um, I know that pricing can fluctuate a little bit based on those options, but like, what's a general ballpark that guys are looking at for pricing? You're going to be looking at about a, uh, about a $1,500 price point on the black gun and about a $1,699 on the camo. Um, where that camo is 
significantly more. I know a lot of people who buy shotguns and rifles are used to camo being very inexpensive. It's usually a hundred dollar upgrade. This is actually a process that we started diving into though. That's a, it's a, it's kind of a color fusion printed process. So where a lot of you guys are used to, if you have an old hydro dipped uh, camouflage rifle after two years, you have all those wear marks ripped off it. This stuff is actually uh, impregnated into the material and it is as resilient as we've ever seen. We've done a lot of abrasion testing and everything. So part of the reason why it's more expensive is because this is like a super durable uh, camo pattern built into the actual uh, metal. So it's giving you durability as well as a really cool look and functioning gun. We, uh, man, we spent so much time on the cross and the fury. We didn't even touch on some of the other guys, uh, some of the other things you guys are bringing to market for the hunting world. Um, you know, one of those that's changing things for sure is the BDX platform. We don't have time to dive deep today, but you know, if guys are newer, haven't heard of that, like just, I want to hit a highlight on what BDX is, how that works into the SIG, uh, the SIG ecosystem. And then maybe just point them to the, so some resources they can go check out and learn more for that. Yeah, so uh, the BDX is uh, it's it gives you uh, a very simple solution uh, to ballistics. What it does is it's it's giving you a, a scope that has a built-in Bluetooth to it that reads to either a, a pair of rangefinding binoculars or to a rangefinder. And and what that does for you is it allows you to be able to take a lot of the uh, learning curve out of long-range shooting, especially for hunters that are trying to. They, they want to go out, they want to shoot long range, they want to be ethical, but they don't have maybe the long range that they want to be able to shoot out to, or they don't have the uh, time to spend to shoot that often. It does give you a much, much better platform to be able to do that. Essentially, what you're doing is you're going in and you're plugging in your ballistic data into an app um, that you're telling it exactly what your velocities are, exactly what your BC is, and you're the, it's giving that information to the scope and it's creating a drop radical. So is, say you, you see an animal out at, at 450 yards, when you have that information bonded to the scope and the rangefinder, as soon as you range that animal, it is going to drop the radical to the position where you're going to want to hold it. Um, it's, it, it, to me, it's, it's a very big advancement for the hunting world because uh, a lot of people, especially from out where I am here in the East Coast, you don't have a lot of chance to shoot longer ranges and uh, I've I've put this thing out and used it in the field a couple times, and I've had guys that are like really, really, really good, good long range shooters that like question the technology, and then they use it, and they're like, "Hey, I need to get another one of these. These things are cool." It, it's it's going to be it's it's one of those things that it's going to be a developmental change for a lot of people because it's new technology and it's in the hunting world, and a lot of people are used to how their scopes work and. It's something that you have to to play with and try. And as soon as you learn it, you will never want to go back. It's a really, really cool system. Flying cars are next, man. That's like next level space age stuff. <laughs> Working on those two, I've already put in to be the uh, to be in charge of this uh, space force. As soon as we start making guns for those two, perfect. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Patrick, thanks for the time. Uh, I know you mentioned resources, but just to recap, as you said, there's a lot of good information on the the cross platform at Sig Sauer. I'm assuming there's dealer locators there and all kinds of info if guys are interested in checking out more about the cross or talking to a dealer about it as well. But thanks for the time, man. I always love uh, you know just the opportunity to not really just 
like I said, hit surface level marketing points on a product, but really kind of dive deep into what's the process, what's the intent, what's behind the features that you see and how did it come about. So I appreciate you taking the time to do that with us for uh, the cross and the fury. Absolutely. It's not often that I get to talk about all those points. You're usually just talking to people about products. So it's kind of fun to uh, let people in the back room for a minute to see how it all works. That's a wrap guys. Thank you for tuning in. Go to sigsour.com forward slash cross to check out the cross rifle. And if you have any questions for us, you can send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and we'll talk to you soon.